BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is WORAM and WORFM in New York. Tell you, you give a guy with a weather report in his hand, you give him five seconds on the air and you're dead, friends. All right, let's give the weather a big hand. Yeah. Hooray for weather. And now on that note, and once again, we've returned to action. Down here deep in the bowels of Greenwich Village. And you can take that any way you want to. Ha, <laughs> Yeah, that reminds me of a terrible parable, but uh, we'll save that till after the air show is over. But nevertheless, we're in Greenwich Village, and where are we, friends? Where? Where do they have the best hamburgers in the world? All right, what's the best joint you've ever been in in your life? Are you glad you're here? <laughs> Nothing like a free commercial. You realize you've all been patsies, don't you? (laughs) Yes, we're down in the Greenwich Village sector known as Sheridan Square, just south of 14th Street, where the search for truth and beauty goes on ceaselessly, where life is lived to the fullest, where each one lives his little life like a burning flame of passion. At the sound of illy-tuned Sears Roebuck guitars, play out the obligato to the wailing cry of mankind spinning towards eternity. How'd you like that? <laughs> Pretty good, huh? Yes, it describes our life. This is the way it is. Oh, speaking of uh, the way it is, since this is uh, next week, uh, National Barbecue Week, National Togetherness Week, and... Uh, This is a program for those that think young. And for the sociables who drink the right pop. We might as well start stripping it down to its basics tonight. And I think the only way to do that is to tell a story about the Army. And about that strange, free-floating fear that men feel when they're confronted with what appears to be the innocent. Why do you think that everybody in that bus was scared out of his skull? Because we live in a society where we believe that all young girls are beautiful. We really do. This is a young girl society in America. Oh, yeah. We we, we lay wreaths at the feet of the young chicks in this country. And so when one comes aboard the ship who's tattooed, who carries with her a newspaper, says, Axe murderer slays nine in bathtub. Picture on page seven. And she bursts into maniacal laughter. There is a fear that just cannot be described that goes through everybody. Women and children, men, chicks, bus drivers, diesel engines, everything was scared. Because it goes against nature. Or at least what we think nature is. And I suspect this is why the armed forces 
the army, the navy, have given rise to the greatest literature that man knows. What do you think the Iliad's about? Those guys were not on picnics. What do you think Electra is about? All the great classical Greek drama has to do with the fantastic clash of those open passions. For well, one time, you know, we mostly think of fear coming from the fear of another man. I say we don't fear other men as much as we fear things which are not men. We know the other man. We know the evil that's in him, you see. And we can judge it. We can play with it. Oh, yeah. Well, one afternoon, I'm about... I think I was about 18, which is a very interesting age. You are just emerging from the chrysalis, and you are about to tiptoe into full butterflyhood. You got wings, but they ain't dry. You see... You think they are. They're stretching out there, you see, but they don't really carry you as well as they should. They look big. You may be nine feet tall at, at 18 years old, but inside you're five feet two and fat and you got skin trouble. Oh, yeah, that's it's, it's definitely there, you see. And I'm 18 years old and I've got the, I've got the uniform of the United States Army on me. That gives you an illusion of having no age. Oh, yeah, you meet, you meet a guy who's a, who's a first sergeant. He may be in the Army 20 years. You never get the sense that he's older than you are. You're both soldiers. You've got this anonymous thing, especially when you've got things like web belling, webbing on you, canteens. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get this great big gas mask hanging over here. You've got a bayonet strapped onto you. You got a tin hat, and you're, you're somehow able to hide that little five feet two shrimp with skin trouble <laughs> that's way down and that wants to drink an Ovaltine. <laughs> you know, you keep saying, I want a popsicle when the whole gang is going into the Idle Hour beer hall, you know. <laughs> They're all clomping in, you know, a bunch of 18 year old guys. You keep saying, I want a popsicle. <laughs> and the first guy in line says, Bourbon! Double! What do you say? You know, you don't say I want a coke. You know, with your all your stuff clanking, and so you, you you move through that world very tenuously. When you're down at the PX, you pretend. You know, you say, "Oh boy, you should have seen me Saturday night." Oh boy, was I bombed out of my skull! Oh, Saturday night at the USO. You know, that's where you spend it, cadging donuts, and sort of apologizing. And so you move through this life very carefully. In civilian life, you know, you can pretend the minute you get home that you're whatever you really are. How many guys, the minute they get home from the office, get out to Darien, take off their shoes, put on their sandals, become eight years old? <laughs> they sit there, suck their fun, watch. They watch an old Lucy rerun, you know. Drinking beer. Oh, you see those guys at the office, great big suits, and they walk around. They have gray in the hair, you know, and smoke big cigars. They call their subordinate son. Get them out on that boat. You see them with the Bermuda shorts, and they're sitting there with the tennis shoes, you know, little guys. They become eight. Well, in the Army, you can't, you see. You can't come back to the barracks from the rifle range, you know, and put on your little T-shirt that says uh, Captain Marvel. <laughs> you know, you just can't do that. It's a very, it's, it's a very different scene. So, so the guys are always held in and they're suppressed, you know, and, and the fears that they feel are fears which they can't really put into words. You can't, the real fears are not the obvious ones that guys make movies about, like uh, fighting the Germans. You know that all the years I'm in the Army, I never hear anybody saying, oh, boy, am I scared when we get up there. Oh, man. They don't, it's just isn't there. They don't talk, because that's so abstract. Let me tell you what they are scared of. You really want to know? I'll tell you. I'm 18 years old, see, and they've shunted me from one signal course school to the next. And each one is somehow getting a little more sinister than the last. Each one. I remember the first time I'm working on a piece of equipment 
working on the on the circuit diagram and they say this diagram is for self-destructive elements and it's got bombs in it you know and up to this point you've just been taking tubes out and putting them in you know this thing is all wired to blow up then I tiptoe into the next school and it seems such a great one <laughs> they said it was a pole line construction school that sounds like nothing just labor to you doesn't it pole line construction and everyone said you know that sounds pretty good you know and, and, and they picked guys that were in good physical condition we figured that was for carrying poles and stuff you see. yeah they did they picked guys that had a certain physical setup good physical condition and they gave us they gave us physical tests we ran around and stuff and they says well we're gonna send you to pole line construction school guys and so we arrived on a Friday night in this new school it was dark you ever gone to a summer camp where they put you in a cabin or in a tent and you can't see the rest of it out there and you just suspect something great's out there, the lake, the mountains, you know, and you sit in there and everybody's talking. It's Friday night, Saturday morning dawns, and we look around. And over on one end of our area is a field. Now picture this in your mind. This field was absolutely denuded of every blade of grass. Absolutely flat, like a table. They had rolled it and rolled it and rolled it until it stretched maybe two miles. It's a fantastic distance. Just two miles of absolutely bare earth. Not a hill, nothing in it. But on that bare earth was a solid porcupine, a fur of telephone poles bare telephone poles sticking up like some insane surrealistic forest that everyone has stripped the leaves from look like skeletons just these white poles of all different heights like a gigantic graveyard stretching out and out and out and reaching up and up and there were little poles and big poles now you look at me and you say well what's scary about that that's exactly my reaction the first morning it looked like fun, kind of like Jim. <laughs> and so Sunday passed peacefully. And now Monday morning arrived. The whistles blow. And you know that first day in school, that little tremulous feeling you have, you don't know what's going to happen. You look around, you know, you sort of stand there and you try to be on your best behavior. You don't know about this first sergeant. You don't know about this duty corporal, nothing. You know, you're going to play it real cool. You're going to watch and see what happens. That's the, that's the big thing in the Army, that you learn. Watch and see. Watch. Keep watching. Keep your eyes open. So we're all standing there, and the eyes are shifting you know, back and forth. And this guy is walking up and down in front of us. You men are here to learn pole line construction. Any of you guys have done any climbing? You ain't done any climbing, any of you? Well, you know... All of us have climbed trees. You know, we've all climbed little things. And so, you know, everybody says, well, yeah, you know. No, I mean any real climbing. Nothing. We're all standing. Nobody volunteered. He said, just watch. You're going to be in charge of Corporal Abernathy, who's going to teach you how to climb long lines construction poles. It ain't easy. And some of you guys aren't coming back. Coming back from what? He means from that field. He doesn't mean the Germans. Corporal Abernathy, take over. And here comes this angry little man built like a bowling pin. And he clanks when he walks. He's got climbers on, you know. He's got these little iron things with the spikes. He's got a big wide belt around him that's got, it's got pliers, hammers. It's got big wire cutters got big leather gloves attached to it and then he's got a huge belt that hangs way down big silver clips on it and he walks out in front of us his tin hat you know the snotty little guy he walks out and he says all right you guys we're going down to the day room now we got 150 sets of climbers and i'm going to show you how to put them on follow let's go let's go come on get on a ball let's go and we're run like this into the day room and they got all these things laid out all these climbers 
Now, what is a climber? This is the kind of thing that I'm referring to. There are simple little pieces of our existence that can strike terror into the hearts of men that most other people don't even know about. All of us are afraid of guns, spears, swords. How many of you know the fear that almost everybody who's ever used a pair of climbers feels when he sees them? I mean, a real sick fear. We didn't know it yet. You know, we're sort of saying, hey, Charlie, look, you know, wow. You know, we're putting them on. Gee, look. And, and you, you put them on it and you start walking and it's like wearing baseball spikes. You go clank, clank. And I'll tell you how it works. On the, right here is a long spike that sticks out. It's about three inches below your shoe. It comes up like this in a big piece of metal. There's a big belt around here and a belt here, belt here and a belt here and this big spike. And you stand there, boy, and you really got a grip. You know, you walk sort of stiff-legged like that. And he says, all right, you guys, pick up your equipment belts now. Don't ever wear them tight. You hear that? They'll tear your gut out. <laughs> tear your gut out, you know. You wear them loose so that if you're flying through the air, you can get rid of it, you know, on the way down so you don't get stabbed by your own pliers, you know. And you... So he says, wear them loose, he says, and I want you to practice working with that buckle because if you start cutting out, the first thing you do is throw your safety belt off, unclip this thing, and let go. Somebody said, Corporal, what is cutting out? You'll find out. Well, so we get all prepared. You know, there's a great feeling of, you know, all kids have a, have a, have a, have a secret little love of putting things on their body strapping things on, you know, and little hats and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And each one of us shares it. That's, let's face it, we all do. And so there is a kind of fun, you know, putting this thing on a big pair of wire cutters. Here's a big, a tremendous collection of pliers all going down like this. And it's yours. It's issued to you. you know, it's all new and beautiful. And so he gets us out there and he says, All right, men, you're all equipped now for pole line construction duty. Don't kid yourself because you got the equipment, you know nothing. You don't. About face. Take one step forward in the company street. Right face forward, Hodge. And we go off. And you have double time like this. And clank, 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 clank. And we're getting closer. These poles are coming. And we had been seeing them, you know, from about a mile distance. Clank, 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 clank. And they're getting bigger. Clank, clank. The closer we get, the higher they get, the skinnier they get. They're getting higher, and suddenly we're here, and there they are. And we stand. All right, now, men, I will demonstrate how you take your first hitch on a pole. He goes like this. Clank, boom, zoom, up he goes. He's like a monkey. Gunk, 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 gunk. He goes, we watch. Have you ever seen those guys on poles? Oh, you've all seen them. Doesn't it look like fun? Doesn't it look easy, gang? Well, I'll tell you. He says, all right, now, watch this. He's up there on the pole. We're all watching him. Keep your knees stiff. Swing out. Lean back on your belt. That belt is not a safety belt. It's a work belt. Everybody, you know, that I knew up to that time, it felt you put the belt on, it's, it keeps you up there, you know. It's a safe. That ain't no belt for safety. That's a work belt. You lean back, you work like that, see. But if you cut out, if them things go oomph, you get rid of that thing and down you go. He said, don't you hang on. He says, I'll tell you why. You'd reach the bottom of that pole looking like a porcupine. You would have eight foot slivers that went in here and came out the top of your head. Good God. You know, I'm telling you, this is the truth. You know, we're all of a sudden, it's, it's getting very menacing. You know, this little pole that we're going to climb. He says, now, all you guys in the first row there, I want you to take one step forward. All right. All right, now, each one of you address your pole. That's army talk. That means look at the damn thing. Address your pole, and upon command, I want all of you to take your right foot, raise it above the left sole, plant it in, 
Take a short hitch, up, and then up, 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 one, two, three, and stop at the third one. So everybody's standing. Wait. Guess who's fourth from the end? And there's that telephone pole. Up to this time, telephone poles have been just little things you carve stuff on, you know. Or you spit on, or you throw rocks at, you know. All of a sudden, this thing is leering at you. It's just leering at me. And you can smell the creosote. And you can see where millions of other guys have climbed up those holes. They've gone up, and the pole looks as rotten as cheesecake. This has been climbed on since the first German went into, the, went, into, went into Poland. Ten million Signal Corps soldiers have climbed to the top of these things and have seen and looked at the bull right over his horns and have climbed down. And now here I am. I stand there. He says, right foot into the pole, hip! I'm hanging there, you know, and all of a sudden, ankles, boy, I'll tell you, you, you discover you've got ankles of pure spaghetti, you know. I'm hanging like this, and I'm only three inches from the ground, you know, like this. Everyone's hanging, he says, all right, left foot up, hump, up, up. I'm hanging like this, you're hanging. He says, all right, now, and everybody's teetering. And that pole is going up. And here we're three feet from the ground. And that pole goes all the way up into heaven somewhere. He says, hold on now. All right, now. The easy part is getting up. <laughs> you know, you never think of coming down. That all seems, seems so easy. He says, all right, now. Raise your foot straight up. Do not bend your ankle. With that, I go, whoa. <laughs> Eight guys out of ten go down on their things, you know. And they're later. And he says, all right, man, get up, get up, you slob, get up. Do you realize that if you eight had done that another three feet higher, we'd have the ambulance here? Yes, 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 I know. Well, this continued for the first morning. And as it continued, the fear built in at the same time a peculiar kind of pride builds up. It must be the same thing with guys that walk tight ropes. You're scared, but you're glad you can do it. And so we began to climb higher and higher until by the end of the second day, we are climbing 30-foot poles. Now, a 30-foot pole seems, you know, 30 feet seems a little bit to you, but that's almost three stories. Now, can you imagine yourself hanging at the top of a tiny toothpick, three stories up, just hanging there, see, and with the, with the stories ringing in your ears of cutting out, and the wind is blowing back and forth, back and forth. He said, look, we are going to work on the 30-foot poles for two straight days. Then we're going to climb. Then we're going to climb. You know, we figured, you know, let's stop here. We're pretty good now, you know. <laughs> You know, this is good here. The fourth day, we arrive at what they call the major pole area. These poles range from 45 feet to 96 feet in height. Right? Have you ever seen a night? He knows what I'm talking about. Have you ever seen a 96-foot high pole? Oh, my God. They're made out of wood, the same kind of wood. They're not much thicker than the others. It's like climbing up a string. Almost ten stories. Well, on the fifth day, we're beginning to develop this thing inside of us. We hated to get out there. You know that terrible fear that you have of failure? Of not, you want to stay in bed? Well, by, I'd say, roughly Thursday, it was almost impossible to get us up. We all pretended we were tired. But every day, you know, we'd get these things on and start putting them on, and we'd start, because you knew, you knew it had to happen. You just knew something had to happen. We're now working on the 60-footers. 60 feet is roughly five stories or a little above. And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I have worked my way up to the top of a 60-foot pole. And I'm looking down. You know, by the way, that was one of the great commandants. Don't look down! You nuts need standing. Quit looking down, gasser! Cut out! And, of course, then immediately you look up. <laughs> Have you ever looked up from 90s? 
boy, those clouds are going and everything. And a, a bird goes past you and he's under you, you know. And you, ooh, you're hanging up on his thing, you see, and you just keep saying to yourself, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down. You're 60 feet up and the wind goes. Whoo. You're swaying a full two feet back and forth. And you look down, and you're way out here and you're way over here. You know, and, you're, and you can hear your clients creak. And way down below, I hear the corporal, oh, you guys, come on down, come on down. And I start going down. I made about three steps down. And by now, you know, you figure you're pretty good. About three steps, and suddenly I hear a rip. It's a ripping sound. Just like somebody ripping a pair of Levi's. It's and I felt something happen, a funny feeling, just in the left foot. I just felt it. And I dug my right in, and my left foot is floating free. It has cut out. I put this thing back in like this. I start working it. I get it stuck in solid now. I'm sweating like a pig. Hanging on, and the breeze is blowing past me. I'm swaying back and forth. I start bending, and now everything goes. You know what happens when you get scared? Everything you've learned goes out of your head. Gone, gone, gone. You become a basic animal. And all it says, that basic animal is, hang on. Hang on. Don't move. They're hanging on there, see. And I look out, and I see the other guys are going down. And I hear this guy, come on, shepherd. And I just hear, come on, shepherd. So I start, I start working my way down. I get about halfway down when suddenly I hear floating up to me. This strange, it sounded like a siren. It just went, wah. And I heard a silence. And I knew somebody had fallen. It wasn't me. <laughs> I knew somebody had gone. No, really, it was a terrible moment, you know. And I, and I, and I, 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 I don't know whether I should look down or what, you know. And I, I start working down. And I hear a lot of talk down there, a lot of guys running around. And I'm working my way down. And a sergeant hollers, Shepard, stay where you are! Don't move! He could see that I was chickening. I'm hanging there. I peek down, and I see about 30 guys all around the base of a pole. And there is that little tiny figure. And I see the jeep coming over the field. And I can see that big white wagon with the big red crosses coming over the field. And I'm hanging there. Just hanging. That wind is blowing. Way off over in the distance to the Ozark Hills, you know, that you sing those folk songs about? And I'm hanging. I'm looking. They pick this guy up, and he isn't moving. I just see these just all limp. He's hanging there. Into the wagon, and off they go. And then it comes. The sergeant yells up. Shepard! Do you want me to come up after you? <laughs> Do you want me to come up after you? No, they, they, they really do. They get very scared when there's a casualty on the climbing field, right? They absolutely panic because everybody else then goes down. It's like one guy falls, they're like leaves. They come down. <laughs> oh, yeah, you lose your all your guts, your nerve, everything goes. Your knees get weak and down you go. And you're 40 feet up, you know, you come down like a rock. So I said, no! <laughs> you know, and I start edging down. I keep thinking to myself, keep your knees straight. Keep your knees stiff now. One, two, down, down, down. And I start working my way down, down, down. And I finally touch the ground. Good God. And I stand down there. And nobody's paying any attention to me now. You know, I'm down. I walk. I go walking over to the rest of the guys, and they're sort of talking around, you know, well, let's go. You know, taking a ten-minute break. And they do not allow, as you know in the Army, they do not allow you to dwell on the last crash. So everybody finishes his cigarette, and he says, all right, now, address your pool. We are carrying aloft cross trees. Pick up your cross tree. You all know how to mount cross trees? We've been practicing. The cross tree is the thing that goes over. This is the first time we have ever done it on the top of a high pole. And so I begin to climb. And each step I am getting more scared. 
And I can hear the sergeant running back and forth down there. All right, Dancer, come on, I'm old. It's all right, boy. He knows. You know, they're all up there scared. All right, boy, come on, Dancer. And about halfway through climbing up, the sergeant suddenly hollers, Halt! Halt! I'm standing there. This thing is swinging in the wind. That cross pole, the wind. I look over, and about 35 feet up, one of the GIs has frozen. He's hysterical. He's busted. And he's just hanging on there, and he's, he's, he's frozen. He's crying, yelling. And we're all looking. You know, all of us, each one of us, this whole tree full of guys. It's like eight million monkeys in the trees, and one monkey has flipped his wig, you know. We're all, we're all hanging there, and he's screaming. And the sergeant says, go on up, you yellow belly. Get up there. And the guy continues to cry. And the sergeant says, all right, I'm coming up after you. And he starts to climb up like a fiend. He goes up, boom, 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 boom. And this kid is looking down, and he starts to climb again with a sergeant after him. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. I'm not inventing this thing. The kid gets up to the top, and here we all are now. 120 guys with cross poles at the top of enormous telephone poles, 60 feet in the air. And a sergeant goes back down and he says, All right, now, attach those poles. I want you to have them attached in 45 seconds. I'm timing you. When I give the go, go. Go! And we start sweating up there. Just with the bolt through there. You know. Taking your big bolt out. Oh, it's terrible when you have to let go, you know. you got to let go to get the stuff out. Ooh. You're holding on. You're putting this thing on. And the wind is turning. These cross poles. It's like a big airplane in the wind. 60 feet up. Oh, it's tight. Oh, my God. It's, it's tight. It's tight. And I start climbing down. I start climbing down. I'm about 30 feet on the way down now, and I feel like I've made it. I'm in. I'm a pole line man. And I start climbing down, and I'm about halfway down the pole. And I look over at Gasser, who's two poles away, my old buddy. I say, come on, Gasser. And suddenly, oof, I am in midair. I'm telling you the true story. I am in midair. And that instinct went just like a clock. It says, detach that belt quick, man. And I hit it and going. It says, kick away from the pole. And I am going down. And the next thing I know, I am in the clinic. It is ten days later. And I see above me these poles and all these little pulleys, these winches. I'm laying there. And it just, just like somebody turned the light on. It was just now all of a sudden light. I didn't come out gradually. I just came out. I'm still on a pole. I didn't feel a thing. The girl comes over, this second lieutenant, this nurse. She looks down at me. She says, how are you, Mac? That's the army, you know. How are you, Mac? And I said, okay. what happened? She said, you'll be all right. She walks away. <laughs> and I could see out the window, way off in the distance, the tops of the poles. Just out there in the distance. And about ten minutes after I came to, I could hear them coming down the ward. I could hear my buddies. Gas are coming. Gas is coming. How are you, Shep? You know, how are you, Shep? Behind me is the sergeant now, suddenly looking down at me. He says, how are you, Shepard? Keep your knees tight. <laughs> the sergeant, you know, you keep your knees tight. Did you? Speaking of tight knees, what radio station is this, man? AM and FM, New York. And now let's give the sales department its rotten pound of flesh. We'll be back in one minute. Are you for a filter and rich flavor, too? The logical move is L&M. The logical move. The logical move is L&M. The rich flavor cigarette. 
Are you for a filter? L&M has a modern all-white filter. Pure white, both inside and outside. And you get the good taste of L&M's rich flavor leaf. The good taste of soft nature, longer-aged tobaccos. So if you're for a filter, and rich flavor too... The logical move. The logical move is L&M. All right, all right. We're back at the limelight here in the heart of Greenwich Village. And if you're looking for a place to buy a hamburger and sit around for an hour or so tonight, how late will we be open? Three. Three o'clock in the morning. If you're really decadent, we're here. <laughs> but, you know, fear is a funny thing. Uh-oh, no, that's the wrong one. <laughs> well, it's the village. <laughs> talk about a sight gag. Wow. <laughs> These poor guys are going to talk about this the rest of their lives. <laughs> and you know, when you hear me tell a story, you always feel, you know, he's made it up. Believe me, five years from now, these guys are going to tell a story about how in the middle of a nightclub show, in front of everybody, they went in the ladies' room. And everyone's going to say, oh, Charlie, what a bunch of fool, for God's sakes, you know. There they are, you know. If you think their faces are red, you ought to see the bottoms of their feet all the way down. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I, I, I'm really, I'm really, uh, I'm really constantly, uh, Interested, fascinated, bewildered, perplexed, and whatnot about what we are. No, seriously, I mean what we are. And this idea of the free-floating fear is something that I think bears very heavily on us. Now, we're all people here. We all have certain things in common. We're, we, I, I trust we're all human beings. We all know about death. We all know about birth. We know how it feels to breathe. Yeah, we all, we're, all, we're all human beings walking around. And yet there are some things that are inside of us that none of us ever talk about. And that is, at least one of them, is this maniacal urge to do away with yourself. It's there, you know. It is there. And you can see it on all sides. And I remember the first time I really discovered this as a kid, I am deeply involved in reading G8 and his battle aces. I'm reading stories about, these are stories about flying. They used to do terrific stories on flying. This was like Western of its day. G8 and his battle aces, Lone Eagle, Daredevil aces. And airplanes were always something that were kind of abstract, even to us that ride in them today. An airplane really isn't an airplane. It's like a big machine, like a, an extension of your living room. If you ever thought it was an airplane, I think you'd, I think you'd, uh, I think you'd turn green, you know. I mean, a real airplane with a big wings flying out eight million feet above the ground, you know, just barely hanging up there. It would scare the daylights out of you. Well, I'm reading these magazines, and I'm, I want to see airplanes. Well, I was ten years old. My old man came home and he said, tomorrow's your birthday. And he said, I'm going to take you to the air races. Have you ever been to an air race? Very few people today alive remember air races. For some reason or other, this has been erased from our consciousness. You know, William Faulkner wrote a great book about it called Pylon. But the air race was not flying from Los Angeles to California. And, of course, I'm a kid. I say, yeah, Dad, let's go. Wow. You know, and I think in terms of people getting into airplanes and sort of flying around, I'd heard about air races. Now, wait a minute. Hey, what's going on here? Let's give it easy there. Easy, man. <laughs> so so I, I can't figure out what this, you know, air race, it's just airplanes. It's exciting. Well, outside of Chicago, the day that the air race started, had this great field with a set of stands just like you see at a ball game. Now, picture this in your mind. These are airplanes. Airplanes. Not motorcycles. Not cars. Not horses. Airplanes. And they have these stands. And there in the foreground is a kind of track. And at the end of the field, and that field didn't look any more, any longer than maybe two football fields put together. 
there are two pylons sticking up, just little, maybe 50 feet in the air, two little towers. And down on the field were maybe 75 tiny airplanes. Now, these airplanes were just motors with wings, little angry-looking things. They looked like, like uh, bees or something. And here down on the field are the, are the pilots. I think every one of us feels secretly a kind of sense of awe at a pilot, even a private pilot. He's doing something unnatural. He's got some kind of magic. He does something against nature. He hovers above the earth. No wonder we have father figures. In fact, I suspect that this is going to help Goldwater. <laughs> Being a pilot, sure, he's, he's, he's magic. Don't laugh, he's magic. Oh, yeah, wait till Goldwater flies from coast to coast in a jet plane, spelling out, vote for me. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's going to make a difference. I mean it. You see that thing 30,000 feet? That's magic. It really is magic. And so we're all sitting there waiting. And down on the field, these guys are warming up their airplanes. Remember this. These are men like you and me. They know about death. They know about birth. They apparently like the trees and the sun. They apparently like the beach on Sunday afternoons. They like to smell the flowers and watch the sun come up and down. These are all things that all of us do. And I go in there, you know, it's my 10th birthday gift. It's the wildest birthday gift I ever got in my life, go to the air races. And, of course, this is a, any dad that takes his son to the air races or to the motorcycle races, or to the fist fights, <laughs> is automatically really in like Flynn. You know, my old man is sitting there. He's telling me, oh, yeah, you know, he says, I, I used to do flying when I was a kid. Uh, but, you know, that old junk, and he's talking about flying, and I'm, I'm sitting there watching down there, and they're, they're, they're working on the planes, and it's building up. And suddenly one of them takes off. You know, they don't even have racing aircraft today in our world. And I know a lot of guys, this is a, 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 a thing that only existed in America because it's part of the maniacal American drive and urge towards violence. They didn't have this in Europe. No, air races of this type were not flown in Europe. They were never flown anywhere but here. They were flown outside of Cleveland. And so every man gets in his plane and he starts hopping over the ground. Now, don't think of Piper Cubs, please. Think in terms, if, if you can imagine, of a small very angry, insane, atomic-driven electric fan with no wings, just little stubs, and they went, they leap off the ground, and they, they were racing planes, you see. They were built only for speed and maneuverability, not for landing, not even for flying. They were just like, no, they were just like, if you get something wound up fast enough, it jumps off the ground, you know, and they would go, and we and they're flying right past us, you know, right on the stand. Ew! 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 Gee, it's maniacal. And my old man is screaming. He's out of his skull. He loves it. And the people are yelling, let's go! Hey, you know, they're up there screaming in each little airplane. There's a yellow one, and there's a red one, and there's a green one. There's a Howard Ike, and there's a GB Sportster. And each one was more maniacal and deadly and murderous than the last. Now, if you can imagine ten guys circling around on a field 25 feet above the ground at 250 miles an hour, wide open, racing for the starting line all together. Can you imagine this? You're not over 150 feet from them. And these airplanes go, boom, and they're off. Well, they hit the first corner, the pylon. They went screaming around this thing like, a, like, a, like an angry herd of bees. Wee! And suddenly one goes, Wee! Boom, 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 boom. It's gone. Do you think they stopped? As a matter of fact, they opened it up two notches wider. And they're screaming around this pylon. And my old man is yelling and hollering, and everybody is up screaming, and I'm up screaming. And they go whistling past again, one after the other, whistling past. Until finally, out of the ten, there were four planes left. And the rest, they just didn't come down, you know, to get gassed. I'll tell you, they weren't landing passengers at Toledo. 
You'd see what you would see. All of a sudden, you'd see one go ee 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 ee, gung 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 gung, boof. And then the guy would get out, and everyone would cheer, and then they'd say, "And number seventeen, formed by Harold Wilson, went down on the twenty-third lap. He looks like he's all right from here. Let's give Harold a big cheer." You know how they do those maniacal, insane races with the stock cars? Oh, we're living in a very easy age. And so I began to see that there's two things going inside of each one of us. The desire to see the birds, to see those trees, to smell the breeze, and to kill ourselves. As spectacularly as we can. What is it? Does the camel feel this? Have you been reading in the paper recently about the people standing up on Brooklyn Bridge and the people hollering, jump! Jump! <laughs> have, you, have you read that in the paper? Have all of you had the sneaking desire to see an airplane crash? Have you? Yeah, look at her. What is it? Well, I want to tell you, it's a funny thing. The only time I participated in a real crash was when I was playing the tuba. I'm an old bass player, and I don't know whether many of you have ever known the terrible thrill of standing in a line of, of eight tuba players with a band of 120 pieces lined up ahead of you, and you're getting ready to lace into El Capitan. Boy, what a feeling of power and immenseness. You know, you walk around... And one quiet afternoon in high school, I, this also incidentally is coupled with the worst, most embarrassing moment I ever had in my life. Terrible embarrassing moment. You know, we all have moments. I, I'm just looking around. I wonder at each one of these people, things that happened to them that scared the daylights out of them and that they've been trying to forget ever since. Those rotten things that happen, just terrible thing, you know, like you're caught. Oh, boy. Insane stuff. See. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty snotty, you know, at that age. I'm about 16. I'm in high school, and I'm playing the bass, you know, and I got a letter and all that stuff, and I play football. I'm kind of a snotty guy, you know, like all high school kids are. And I'm sitting in the back row. On, hey, what's going on here? Shh, you're breaking in here. You just do it quietly, okay? So I'm, I'm sitting in the back row in a rehearsal in the auditorium. Now... Have you ever rehearsed in a band in an auditorium? It booms and echoes. It's all high school there. Old speeches are still hanging in the curtains, you know. It's all sort of warm, and it was just about two days before graduation. And I'm sitting in the back up on a riser. The bass players all are eight inches higher than the rest of the people. I'm sitting there. Sitting. And old man Dirks is out in front, and Dirks says, All right, now, he says, we're going to take it from C. Take it from C there. Let's hear the bass section. Let's hear the bass section. Okay, now, take it from C, fellas. And that lovely feeling, you know, of blowing a horn. And it's coming out, you know, and you're working the valves. And, you, and you're singing, you know. It's great. It's a little feeling. You feel it vibrating. You feel the horn vibrate on your shoulders. There. So we're playing away there. All right, now. He says, okay, now, let's take it from C. All together now, all of you now. And I'm snotty just real snotty kid. And I'm leaning back on my seat like this with the front tilted up. My B-flat sousaphone stretching eight stories above my head, 700 pounds of tin and brass metal. And here I am, 200 pounds of brass, you know. I'm sitting there like this, and I'm getting ready to start at number C, and Dirks raises his baton, holds it like that. Just as I go this way to go in, the kid next to me shifts forward, and I start backward. In my sousaphone, I'm tilting back. My God, it, ooh, and down I go, and I hear something rip. There's a giant, Aish! I have just fallen through the scenery for the senior play, which is tonight, which was stored behind me. And I went through this thing with a giant rip. And I'm behind the scenes now. And I hear Dirks back there. What happened, Shepard? What did you do? Ooh. We had a drama teacher and an art teacher 
named Miss Breifogle that was made out of pure flame. She was the one lady in our high school that wore the big bangles, you know, and had the long neck and the dirndl, and she always dreamed that someday she'd go to the village, you know, and do Chekhov. <laughs> and everybody in the school was scared to death of her, and I had torn a rip in with my sousaphone. Well, man, I'll tell you, man knows moments when he is above his, his equipment, when he's on top of his Ford. And then there are moments when the Ford is on top of you. And I got up with that sousaphone, and coming down the main aisle, Miss Breifogel was already screaming. What happened? What happened? My scene! My scene! It was my first moment in the theater, by the way. And behind her was a group of screaming 17-year-old actors. I'd always thought they were just kind of sissies, you know. The different world, and they came down me like a, all of a sudden, there I am. I'm one with the airplanes flying. I'm getting ready to climb that pole at Camp Crowder. I'm getting ready to move out on the beach. I'm getting ready to face that big sign that says, Toll Ahead. Exact change lane, bare left. And knowing I don't have the exact change. And all those smart guys are barren left. And I'm heading right towards that big toll gate with a $50 bill. <laughs> and it's a 10-cent toll. And there are 9 million cars behind me all lined up to Trenton. And I can't get my wallet out of my back pocket. And they're starting to honk. And I know that just ahead for each one of us lies that big sign. It's my birthday. Twenty-three years old today. We're at the limelight. We'll be back next week at five minutes past ten. Thanks for coming, all of you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.